finance and it all seems to be going very well. See, just like the church in Milford, really. Um, if you look at the passage just before this, they're in the temple courts every day in Solomon's Colonnade. You, the reason they went to Solomon's Colonnade is it had a nice kind of cloister with a bit of shade, and they would have been able to gather people and share with them and heal the sick, raise the dead. Well, I don't know how many dead people came along, uh, but they clearly did some extraordinary miracles, including uh, Peter just walked past a few people and the, sh the, the shadow fell on them, and they instantly got healed. So it was really cool. It was breakthrough. Do you remember that? Well, I'm going to do a few odd things, which is why I've got the old mic on, while I'm talking to you about this passage. And that is, I really want to talk to you about what it might look like if there was breakthrough in Milford. I just wanted to think about it for a bit, what it might look like. Um, and br breakthrough in Jerusalem back then, what I mean by that is spiritual breakthrough, the kind of breakthrough where... Uh, as Christians, we talk about Jesus and people become Christians rather than they go, hmm. Um, and the kind of uh, breakthrough where spiritually things are moving so fast that you can just walk past someone and, and your shadow falls on them and they get healed. In other words, or maybe you could do a kind of the handkerchief thing, although nobody has handkerchiefs anymore. How do you do it with tissues? It's not quite as nice, is it? Um, anyway, do you know what I mean by the handkerchief thing? The handkerchief thing is you pray over a handkerchief because you can't get to somebody in hospital. So you pray over the handkerchief and send the handkerchief and it gets there and they get healed. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be great if all your Christianity was like so cool that everything you prayed for, it just seemed to, stuff happened. Not everything happened, but stuff happened all the time. Wouldn't that be fantastic? What I'd like to suggest to you is that Christianity sometimes just happens like that. But most times it happens because we do something which brings it about. You sit there and say, well, it's God who's going to bring it about. Yes, but God has set it up, the universe, in such a way that we do something with God and then things happen. Or if we do nothing with God, nothing happens. In other words, there is cause and effect between our spiritual activity in cooperation and in partnership with God and then what happens after that? So, bear with me a moment. I don't need to decorate Milford Baptist Church. I have brought this for a, a totally different reason. And the reason is, I'd like to talk to you about a few occasions when, in my experience, I have seen spiritual breakthrough. I don't mean revival. Uh, some of you have probably been brought up in revivalist in a kind of, we're just waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to do something, we're waiting for God to do something. And if he doesn't do anything, it's not our fault because we're waiting for God to do something. I don't believe in that. I do believe in this, that when you're young and 20 and 30, it's dead easy to really do something because you want to achieve something. And when you're 60 or 70 or 80, maybe not feeling terribly well and quite like to go on holiday, um, it's harder to do something, isn't it? There's, it seems to be more natural for people in their teens and 20s to play football as a team than for many of us in this room. Is that fair? And actually, it's when you do something as a team. I don't know if you watch sport. How many of you watch sport? So you'll understand. The rest of you will not understand this. Well, you might in an orchestra or something like that. But 
there's something about working together, and when you work together, and you do it intensely, not just routine. There is the need for routine, you know, Friday there is the toddler group, and Monday's the this, and then we turn up on Sunday, and we try and put a few programs in, and maybe we all go around and have coffee at Sue's house, and life goes on, and we're trying to reach people, but it's ticking along. But there's something about when you all turn up as a team and you say, we are going to stay here and we are going to do something and it's going to change the world that is really quite invigorating. Do you remember that from your youth? Excuse me, I just have to make sure I'm getting the right one in the right place. Because if I don't, one of the things I've discovered about creativity is that if you're too creative, you come up with a plan which isn't the plan. And if you come up with a plan which isn't the plan, you know, a lot of religion is all about creativity these days. God is not really into creativity. He just wants you to do what he told you to do. Did I say that? If you just do what he tells you to do, rather than being creative, be surprised what would happen. Stuff happens. And it happened for the apostles. The apostles basically were told, go back into the city and pray and wait, and then the Holy Spirit would come upon you. So they went back into the city, they prayed, and they waited, ah, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. It's not rocket science, just do what you're told. Sometimes we think we've got to find the next really cool program from the Christian press in order to run a church really well. I would suggest that what we really need to do is what we're told, which is to get, some of you are worried why I'm doing this at all, but there is a reason why I'm doing all this, by the way, and that is that there was going to be a teenager. I don't know which one of you thinks you are the teenager. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll try and do something that's a bit more teenagery. So I am. So forgive me. For those of you who... Do you know, the reason I'm doing this is that when I first started in Christian ministry, we did this all the time. My wife and I were part of a team called Open Air Campaigners, and we worked in the centre of London. And... On Wednesdays, every Wednesday, we were in Covent Garden. It was quite exciting in Covent Garden because there was a particular line of bricks in Covent Garden. And if you were this side of that line of bricks, you were part of a... The, the, the land was owned by the actual marketplace. And they sold the right to busk to a number of people who did weird kind of juggling and stuff like that. But if you were that side of the line, it was technically the pavement. And the pavement in the UK is called the Queen's Highway. You'd have thought that the Queen's Highway would be the road, but that is the carriageway. Now, the Queen's Highway is the pavement, and the law in the UK says that you're allowed, this is really subtle law, says you're allowed to stand on the, and, get, and have public assembly. Now, you're not allowed to do it within half a mile of the Houses of Parliament while it's sitting, but anywhere on the pavement, you are allowed to have public assembly. You're allowed to assemble publicly. There's another law which says you're not allowed to obstruct the pavement. Now, these are two quite complicated things. Obstruction is against the law, and uh, public assembly is with the law. And I've spent quite a lot of time talking to the Metropolitan Police, normally when other people are doing public assembly, and he's suggesting that maybe we're doing obstruction. I've said, well, what's the difference between obstruction and public assembly? You know, as, long as, as long as I talked to him long enough, we were allowed to do our public assembly. 
So we would discuss it for a while, and I'd take down his number, and I'd say, why don't we call your boss and find out what the difference between public assembly... And they went on and on and on, and they used to laugh at us. Um, this worked very well in Covent Garden, uh, because we'd always have enough time to do what we wanted to do, which was to have a public assembly. Now, one of the problems with the way people talk about Christianity and people doing public assembly is that normally the person doing the public assembly or organising it looks like a nutter. So we have, to be, we have to work very carefully to try and not look like a nutter. And um, no... But I understand exactly what you mean. The whole idea is it's meant to make you think I must need a hand. <laughs> but, you know, you can set all this up. Can you imagine, if, you, if I was setting... One of the places we loved doing this was Oxford Street. It's not actually Oxford Street. It's just off Oxford Street in Argyle Street, near Liberties. Do you like Liberties? Some of you do. Liberties is a shop. It's nothing to do with America. They don't have much. Um, so, but there's a little, a little road that goes off Oxford Street near Liberties, and we would set up like this, and the person who was going to do something would stand there looking like a nutter. And then we'd get one other person to stand here like this, and then they didn't look like a nutter, they looked like two people working together. And then the really subtle thing was to have rent-a-crowd. Now imagine your rent-a-crowd. Just to have a, about seven or eight other people standing in the crowd looking like normal people. Hard for Christians, but they did succeed it. They didn't have to dress up like Salvation Army or anything, just stand there and look like normal people. And as a result, when you start speaking, you don't look like a nutter. And the reason you don't look like a nutter is because you've already got a crowd listening to you. And other people join the crowd. You might be saying, well, why are you telling us all this, Hugo? Well, because these people in this passage, they were not Jesus. They were just people like us. We sometimes think that apostles were different from us because they had plates on the back of their heads. But apostles don't have plates, and they didn't then. They were just like us. They were completely wiped out by the cross. Jesus died. Then he rose from the dead, and they still didn't quite know what to do because it was all a bit weird. Then they did what they were told, had the ascension and all the rest, went into a room and prayed for God to break through spiritually in Jerusalem. They waited and prayed and prayed and prayed, and then they thought, let's do something. Well, it, partly the let's do something came from the Holy Spirit in them saying, we've got to do something. Now, I've done a, a number of missions, and I've done a number of church plants in my life. When we've done church plants, it's been like we've gone in, every Thursday night, we've gone into the church and we pray, God, we want to see breakthrough in this community. We wanted to see breakthrough in this community. And we've gone on praying until we had to. Well, there's always been a meeting, whenever we've done a church plant, after a little while, where someone says, we can't just pray, let's do something. Which is the, and it's when you get to the let's do something, you know something's beginning to engage. And almost always, the logical thing to do is to talk to people about Jesus in the community you're trying to reach. So then people say, well, how can we do that? Well, there's a basic rule with talking to people about Jesus. Do it as a team, because if you do it by yourself, it feels odd. For example, if I turned up in Milford next week, and I walked up and down the road here and started knocking on doors by myself and said, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, 
it's a bit odd. But if I brought five or six of my friends and you all gathered, and we had a prayer meeting in here, and then we went out and we started knocking on doors, or we went and did something at the post office, it wouldn't be this, because this works well in central London or central Guildford or something like that. But if we did that because we were saying, God, let's break through, you don't feel like a nutter by yourself. And more than that, there's something of a head of steam spiritually that begins to build up. I'll tell you another thing that happens, and that is that for a long time, quite often, the prayer meetings happen, and the trying to talk to people happens, and nothing happens. And you think, what was the point of that? And I have a basic rule in all of those seasons which we've had, either church planting or doing a mission in a university or somewhere like that, where we have got together and we pray, pray for people by name, pray for people that we have to open to on the door. And normally, for the first number of days, every conversation goes nowhere, nothing's happening, and we basically had a, a phrase in all the prayer meetings we would run, which, which is, Lord, we know you have to get us to the point where we give up. So, we give up. And then we go, but we know, God, you know that giving up is one of our tactics, so we're going to give up giving up. We know we've got to get to the point where we can't do it, and you just stand up, so could you just take us there now, because it's getting boring, and we'd like to see a breakthrough. And we put that into the prayer meeting, because, and then you can find, God has a sense of humor, and he goes, okay, and finally something happens. It's normally when you give up, really. But you can't manufacture it, but you can know that that's what you're looking for. That moment where you can't do anything anymore, and God turns up. And that passage was when that had happened on a mega scale. Some of you think, nothing in my life happens on a mega scale. <laughs> well, it really did on that day. Look, they, they, every day they were in the, in the temple courts, and extraordinary things were happening. Right, now, I got to the point in central London where most days we'd go out and sometimes not much was happening and sometimes something was happening, but the team began to get ahead of steam. Now, let's see what we can do with this, because this is a... Have you seen one of these before? Ooh. It doesn't matter, it's just for fun. Because you... Well, this isn't creative. This is, just, this is just the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not an artist, all right? But when I stand up on the streets in central London, I would say, I'm an artist! Because, you know, you may as well try. And then, kind of flick a bit like this, and a bit like this. The more you flick, the more people think you know what you're doing. It's called impressionism. You know? So, well, basically, I was definitely not a creative person, but someone showed me this when I was uh, 1920. And they said, if you do kind of this kind of thing, they, they think it all kind of looks cool, you see? So you, you do it. And, but as I said, I'm not an artist at all. I'm really very bad at things. But I, w I found that people on the street, when you did that, they went, oh, wow, he knows what he's doing. So they would begin to gather. So we're beginning to gather because I discovered something. And this is important for this story. And that is that um, most people are bored. 
So if you meet them on the street, particularly in central London, they are really bored. But even in Guildford, most people are bored. They're nervous of being taken, you know, and being put in a place where they're embarrassed. But most people are bored. So what that means is that if you do something and they're going, what is that? They're curious. So, yeah, I haven't used this for a little while, so I've got to get my paint right. All right, so let's just give you a kind of feeling of this. Because it would always start by doing something which people can relate to. Can you read that? Can you read that? You have to go a bit boss side. So, that says names. So, I, I could stand up on the street in the middle of London and say, I'm going to tell you, talk to you about names. What's your name? What does it mean? Lily. Oh, isn't that lovely? Here's a lily, ladies and gentlemen. And you could do that for a whole bunch of people. What's your name? Peter. Peter. And what does that mean, Peter? You're Rocky. Rocky is amongst us, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you can see how it works. And everybody's loving it, so you begin to get a bit of a crowd. And then they say, my name's something, you know, I'm called Clive. What's my name mean? You say, Cliff Dweller. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> so uh, you kind of move like that. Uh, and it's all quite good fun. And so let's just do a few more bits and pieces here, just for fun. This one over here. Yeah, that, this one could be fun. Okay. And when you're going to need to put another one here. This is a fun word. I like this word. I think that'll be right. Yep, that's right. Now, can you see, now I've put these up. Everybody knows that there's some words here. And they don't know what it means. They don't know what they are, so they'll wait until, until they see the words. Because they'll be going, oh, I wonder what that word is. <laughs> so this is a clever little trick to persuade people to stand in the crowd and listen. You've got to get their attention before you can expect to say something to them. So what you'd do is you'd start talking about... Um, you start talking about names and stuff like that. And then you might change something. And you'd do it like this. Now, this passage is all about the name, isn't it? And the interesting thing is that, of course, there comes a point where you start talking about Jesus. Oh! Fascinatingly, that we would normally kind of feed the conversation around. We're going to talk about interesting things, talk about what's a problem in your life. And then say, but I really think that the solution is Jesus. And the moment you said the word Jesus in Oxford Street or Leicester Square or Guildford, people went like that. But not everybody, because some of them had just begun to like you. And so they'd stay with you. And uh, part of the joy of the one particular occasion, and this is what's important about this passage, was that one of these people went off. And often by the end of the talk, we'd get... A few people who stayed around, and you'd talk to them and talk to them about Jesus. Normally, the first two or three days out on the streets, we'd get very few people having a deep conversation. Then the next day, we'd begin to have three or four people having deep conversations, maybe even somebody praying to give their lives to Jesus. But if we were doing this for maybe a week or two, by the end, even though the actual general public, the demographics of the people walking past, has not changed, by about a week... Almost everybody will be in deep conversations after you start doing a talk. In other words, something has changed in the atmosphere. And what we need to believe as a church is you can change the atmosphere in your town by the prayer and the work 
and doing it together. Jesus was just one, but having died on the cross and risen from the dead, his spiritual DNA, his spirit, if you like, got into the apostles. And then the apostles spread it into others as more and more people believed. And it built up a head of steam, a spiritual wave of people believing so that stuff happened, miracles happened, prayer happened. On the streets of London, we, we saw days where we maybe prayed with 50 people and seven or eight of them gave their lives to Jesus and we connected them with local churches. I've been into towns like Ipswich and on the first day, nothing happened. We then went out on the streets and prayed in the spaces that we did this kind of thing uh, for in, in the evenings. And by the end of the week, we were seeing strange moments. I remember one uh, occasion in, in Ipswich where we were talking about Jesus and the whole crowd stayed. And then at the end, we said, if you'd like to respond in some way and talk to somebody about how you might connect with Jesus, why don't you take one of these leaflets? And we just hand out the leaflets. And almost everybody came forward except this one young man who was standing about here because he'd got himself right in the middle. And he, he said, sorry, but I can't move. I just can't move. Why can't I move? And you had to sit there and think, I don't know. Why can't you move? No, God was clearly doing something. So you, you turn, you say to him, I think God is on you. He says, there's got to be something because something weird's happening right now. It's much easier talking to someone who God won't let go away. But that did not happen on day one. It happened after a team praying and working for a while and not giving up made the difference. Then God cooperated with that team and worked with that team to the point where the heavens began to open for days and that a particular event. Um, there was an occasion, as I say, in Oxford Street, which was most interesting. Um, and it went like this. Did the talk, mentioned Jesus, guy went away. Few people left, nice conversations. As we ended up with people having conversations around the fruit stall, which was just behind us, um, this guy came back. And he came up to the person speaking, wasn't me, and said... I need to ask you a question. And the person said, yeah. So I was listening at the beginning. I really liked what you were saying. And then you said, Jesus. And I thought, oh. And I walked away. So I got around the corner. And I stood there. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I know that this, all this Jesus stuff is a load of rubbish. So if it's a load of rubbish, why on earth do I need to walk away? He said, if you'd said Winnie the Pooh, that's a, just a fictional character. I don't need to walk away because you say Winnie the Pooh. But you say Jesus, and I go, <laughs> what's wrong with me? What happened in me that made that happen? Brilliant opening conversation. There's something about it that's much bigger, isn't there, when we talk about the name. And it's more than this. The passage actually says that the Sanhedrin uh, had this problem. Said they were jealous. Now, I understand why they were jealous, because they had a building. It was a big building with lots of courts around it. And they were meant to control it. They were meant to go into it. And all the people went to come to them and pay them money to run their religious show. And they were pretty close to God because they were, I mean, this is Judaism. It wasn't wrong, was it? 
It was kind of pre-right, but it was not wrong. But the only problem with it is that they killed Jesus. It's a big problem, but, you know, it, that was the problem at the time. And then suddenly the Jesus followers go and use the temple as their playground. And they've got guards and they've got soldiers and they don't seem to know how to stop them. So they're a bit angry about that. And more than that, they keep having miracles. Oh, they must be faking it. You know, all sorts of... A, yeah, and they get jealous. They want to get them. So they take them and they arrest them. And the apostles do cool, kind of non-violent, resistant thing. Yep, arrest us if you wish. We're going to put you in prison and we'll bring you to trial tomorrow. Okay? And they do it together. Notice the apostles together. It's team. They go into the, into the jail together. They spend the night in prayer. In the middle of the night, an angel turns up and lets them out. We know he doesn't even let them out the door because there are guards by the door. Because the weird thing about this passage is the next morning, when they all gather... It must have been quite a palaver. They got all the elders of Israel into the main assembly room to have this trial of these people. Then they go, send to the jail to get them. So they go to the jail. They're all the guards. They open the door and there's nobody there. So they then come back. I love this. They come back and they go, they're not there. Well, where are they? Did the, you know, and they say, well, no, but the guards were there and there's nobody there. And then it says, they were puzzled. And everything stops. And it says, well, we don't know where they are. We don't know where they are. When, well, obviously, if you were in jail, you were arrested yesterday, what would you do if you were let out? Run away. And then someone comes in and says, you know the people you're looking for? Yeah, they're just outside, teaching everybody and doing miracles. Oh. Guards, go and get them. So, well, guards, we're arresting you again. Okay. Okay. Really? Okay, yes. No violence. Crowd just standing there, almost laughing at the guards. Everybody troops back in to the courtroom. We told you not to teach in this name. They couldn't say Jesus. Chief of the Sanhedrin couldn't say Jesus. He was so angry. We told you not to teach in this name. We told you not to. So why are you doing it? Well, we're not going to do what you say. We're going to do what God says, aren't we? You killed him. He rose from the dead. Here we are. Holy Spirit's here. Miracles are happening. Why would we take the blindest bit of notice of you? After all, we got let out of the jail last night. Did you not notice? How did you get out? Let's kill them! Okay, let's kill them. And then, weirdly, this chap Gamaliel stands up. We never hear of him afterwards, but he comes up with this really good idea, which is don't kill them. Because we've already killed Jesus, so they should just be dispersing. If they're not dispersing, maybe God's with them. I don't think the speech is, God is with them, we shouldn't touch them. It's, God is surely not with them. If we just leave them alone, they'll go home. That, but, you know, if God's with them, there's no point in fighting against it. It'll be, it's a kind of religious speech, isn't it? It's like all good religions. It's all kind of, there's some of this and some of that. And everybody goes, okay, well, let's just calm down a bit. So they then do, well, you know, it's a violent society, isn't it? In order to let them go and not to lose face, they flog them. Imagine being flogged, people. You know, they, these, this is Christians, like you and me. They have got spiritual breakthrough. They're seeing miracles. They have just been let out of a jail. 
They're standing in front of these people. They've shared Jesus with these people, but they're at peace. But before they're let go, they're flogged. That's not pleasant. And there's, bl- there's blood coming off their backs. And then they come out, and as Christians, you know, I think Christians today would go, God, why did you let that happen to me? I thought we had spiritual breakthrough. Can't we? I don't, I, it's not meant to hurt God. But this lot don't do that. They do something completely different. Have you noticed that? They, they, this is the negative side of the board. Here's a positive word. I've done that all wrong. I've done that all wrong, haven't I? G-R-A-C. There definitely is another one there. There we go. See, that's what happens to me when I haven't done this for a long time. Disgrace. You got it now. But yeah, isn't it nice? You all joined in. Um, so, so, disgrace is a positive word. Why is disgrace a positive word? Simply because of this. If Jesus was disgraced, then it's not a bad thing to be disgraced, is it? Just join in, take the pain, and expect it to give us more blessing. For Jesus, he took loads and loads of pain, and it produced loads and loads of blessing. Take a bit of pain, get some more blessing, move on. And they rejoice that they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Yes! Don't you think that's how most Christians today think? Important to think that way if you're going to see spiritual breakthrough and keep it going. Because things will come back at you. And that's because the main cause is not this. The main cause behind that Sanhedrin was something else. There is a spiritual evil in the world. I remember being uh, in Essex University. Essex University building, I, I, I don't know if any of you have been to universities recently, but university campuses are really, and in those days, they used to make them out of literally concrete blocks. The, the, thing that, the worst thing that ever happens to a university campus is the students arriving, and then they wreck it. I understand that. But in those days, when I went to Essex University, as a, we were there to do a mission, to, to try and reach loads of people for Jesus. Lots of people are Christians, maybe about 20 30 Christians on this massive site with several thousand students and they had said we are going to do a mission we are going to work for a week doing anything putting food on and trying to get people to come putting events on sometimes singing sometimes praying sometimes uh, you know like students do because they've got energy do you remember that yeah Uh, and they were going to do a mission and my wife and I and two or three others went along to work with them to go to the meetings and to share Jesus and to pray with people and of course for the first few days not much is happening. And uh, so we, we went on praying and trying to give up, trying to persuade God we'd given up and all of that. Uh, but, and we went on meeting people and sharing with them. There was one young man who kept giving us some grief. Uh, he did actually come to something and say, I'd like to become a Christian. We prayed with him and he was a bit weird. And then he sat there and he said, actually, you need to understand I'm a witch. And we went, okay. 
So tell us about it. He said, well, my name's Lee, and I was brought up in this house. And when I was in this house, uh, uh, it was an odd kind of place in the middle of nowhere. And we had uh, a fireplace. And I sat there, and there were some odd things in the fireplace when we first moved in. And I played with them. And when my parents were out, I had a, a vision of this apparition who said, I'm going to teach you how to be supernatural and powerful. And he started to teach me all sorts of stuff as a child. And uh, he said, it's been the way I've survived. And then I've read books about it, and I've got more and more into witchcraft. But what you're saying about Jesus and the supernatural power he has, well, I don't see much of it, but I think I need, I need to be set free from this stuff because it hurts me. So anyway... Um, we prayed with him, and then the next day he came in and said, they're really angry with me. And we had four or five of us in a room, and he said, they're really angry with me. And he thought, okay, so mental illness is possible. Or, you know, there's all sorts of things that were possible. He was emotional, he was distraught, he was a student a long way from home. Um, but at the same time, it was possible that what he was saying was also true. He could have been making it up to impress us or whatever, so I said, uh, Lee, just calm down. And he said, no, no, you're going to trap me. And I said, no, no, calm down. And I went to, to stop him leaving the room. And he picked me up. And I literally, if, if I'm standing here, it was like I got thrown against a wall that far away. And I thought, ooh, that's odd. Because most people can't do that. You try it. Well, some of you will be able to pick me up. But this guy didn't look big. He just picked me up and threw me. And then he ran out of the room. And I thought, oh. And afterwards we said, I think this could be demon possession. You know, as a person who's brought up in a scientific kind of world, then became a Christian when I was a late teenager, I've, I've always believed in the supernatural, but I wasn't quite sure what it looked like because we didn't quite do that much in the UK. So the next night, uh, my wife and I, Sharon and I, were staying in a house about a mile off the university, nice Christian family. Uh, so we were asleep in the middle of the night. And... Uh, I was woken by Sharon sitting up in bed going, in the name of Jesus, get out. In the name of Jesus, get out. In the name of Jesus, get out. I was thinking, me? Uh, you know, it's dark, and she's kind of doing this at the end of the bed. I'm thinking, oh, how exciting. So I, and she, then she said, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. And I go, all right, what's gone? She said, I saw Lee coming through the window and then like kind of through the wall with a knife towards me. So I've in the, I basically fought against him and used the name of Jesus, and he seems to have gone. And I'm sitting thinking, well, we had this really weird experience yesterday. So it's no great surprise that when you go to sleep, you have a dream that kind of kicks off. Because this is me. I, I kind of rationalize stuff. Do you do that? So anyway, we get in the car, drive down to the university the next morning, get out of the car in the car park, and Lee walks across the car park and says, Sharon, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to do it. And I said, hold on a moment. What didn't you mean to do? He said, last night I was just feeling so pressured. I got myself in my pentangle and I sat there on the floor. And then this thing came upon me and told me to take the knife and go and attack Sharon in the spirit. So I did. I came through the door. But then he, she said, in the name of Jesus. And it just blasted all the stuff away. And I kept, went back into my room. And I, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. But it was making me which was slightly weird. And I went, oh, so it was real. And Sharon goes, yeah, it was real. And I then said, to, can we pray with you, Lee? He said, no, and ran off again. I can tell you the end of the story 
is that on about the last day, it was the last day of that mission, we suddenly saw a breakthrough. Lee came into a time we were worshipping and worshipping and praying, praying particularly for him, but also for about 15 or 20 other people who were kind of in our sights, of people who had been open and had conversations. None of them had become Christians. And Lee came into this room and said, how do I get free? He'd actually gone off to the Pentecostal pastor in town and they'd prayed for them as well and it all become a bit weird. Um, but he came into this room and by this stage we'd come to the conclusion that our prayers and our deliverance ministry was not really working. But we were doing our best because we were learning and enthusiastic and young. And uh, he then said, look, you've prayed for me, they've prayed for me, how do I get free? And I remember saying to him, Without thinking, just tell them to go yourself. You have the right, because of what Jesus has done, to have dominion over your own life in his name. And he said, I want to be free. All of you, go. And I have to tell you that everybody who was there in that room went, wow, what just happened? And he then started speaking in tongues and prophesying. He turned to each person and said, thank you for loving me. Thank you for saying you had just stood with me through this. Tears running down his face. He prophesied into the lives of pretty much everybody present and was converted. And he went on, to be a, went on being a Christian for many, many, for years later. I saw him about 10 years ago, still really going for Jesus. This young man was saved. In the half an hour following that, about eight more people gave their lives to Jesus. Ping, 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 ping. Easy as pie. How do I become a Christian? Just lead me through. Because the spiritual atmosphere changed. Because we broke through. So, the real question is this little word here. And you're still with me because it's a word that's still... What is it? Anybody guess? It doesn't spell Jesus. It's got four letters. Lord, love. Here we go. I've almost finished. See if I can spell this one right. Do you know why I put push up there? Why? Pray until something happens. Push. I'd, I'd like, I mean, I, I don't know what you know, but I've been, I've been talking to people from this church in Chiddingfold and others saying, we've got to see something happen in all these villages. You guys need to you know, not wait another, little, another 10 years and then go, oh, now we really need to do something. Need to do something. Lead some more people to Christ. Young people, children, yes. Not just in routine, maybe by doing mission. You know something, if you turned around and said, let's do mission, let's do two weeks in that point of the year, in 18 months' time, let's work towards doing something, let's see if we can get a whole bunch of people. I've, there are people in other parts of the country who couldn't, wouldn't want to come and live in Milford the whole time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but they'd love to come for a week and a half. You know, come for one Sunday with you and then stay for the week and go in the temple courts, in the, the, the town centre, the town centre of Milford. Yes, there is one, almost. <laughs> but house to house, doing something to see if we can lead people to Christ. And stuff happening, you know, some miracles, some people being, you know, if you meet somebody who's sick, you pray for them to get well as well. If you meet someone in debt, you pray for them to get out of debt. You, but you expect stuff to happen in the end and not to give up until something happens. 
You know, there are people in Guildford who've said to me, I, had a, I talked to them about this week, they said, oh, I'd join in with that. They're just ordinary. They're no more spiritual than you lot. But actually having some guests which you have to kind of host and prayer meetings you have to come to every day and then trying to go from home to home and try and reach your people and sometimes having a, a coffee morning when none of the people you invited came. Ah, but you can then have a prayer meeting. If one comes, it's harder. But if... But, <laughs> But if none of them come, you can pray for them all by name. And God does something. And you see a breakthrough. Yeah. And you need it in the routine. You need it, the prayer meetings, week by week by week. You know, we, we ran a center in Tenerife. And for many years, we were, everybody loved us in the community. But no one became a Christian. Loads of people came, but no one became a Christian. We started having prayer meetings regular prayer meetings, where the list of names, and these were people from drug backgrounds and all sorts of, you know, criminal backgrounds, all sorts of things, but the center was in the roughest area of Tenerife. And uh, our team was maybe four people who were praying, and then it was like, we have got to see a breakthrough. Lord, show us what, how the breakthrough happens. And at the time, there was somebody working with us in England, and I sent them to work out there for two weeks. And she was like the catalyst in the context of this prayer. She just had this really strong sense that her job was, with everybody she met, to talk for a moment and then say, do you mind if I pray for you? And this was, you know, the first person she prayed for was somebody who came up into our center for a cup of tea, who everybody local knew was one of the nastiest criminals in the south of Tenerife. So she chats to him a bit and then says, do you mind if I pray for you? And he goes, yeah, you mean out there. She said, no, I'd just like to stand here, put my hand on your head, and pray for you. Is that okay? And so she prayed for him, and he, after five minutes of prayer, he goes, what did you do? That's amazing. And over the course of the next six weeks, a whole load of people from very difficult backgrounds became Christians, and all happened in those next six weeks. Um, and it was spectacular, extraordinary, a wonderful breakthrough. You could sit there and say it was a sovereign act of God. Yes, it was a sovereign act of the sovereign God in his people acting sovereignly. That's what happens. But without the people doing it, he doesn't do it. Without him doing it, the people can't do it. It comes together as we, we push until something happens. And there were sad things and happy things, but stuff happened. I'll tell you, from the moment stuff started happening, people hated us. Suddenly, how dare you go around telling people about Jesus? Why? Because there is such a thing as evil, which gets into them to try and stop them being involved. Notice what it is. Don't look at the person and think, you're my enemy. Know that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We're not even trying to get people's brains in the right place. But we deal with principalities and powers, and when we've dealt with them, the people get free and can hear and can see. Scales fall from their eyes. It is a supernatural business. It will not happen by being nice. And even working hard, even working for years, it'll happen because you break through spiritually and working with God, stuff happens. Amen? We're going to pray in a moment, aren't we, in groups? Here we go. Yeah, that's all done, yeah.